Good afternoon, everybody. Can you all hear me okay? Even at the back over here? Brilliant. Fantastic. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Brooks, and I'm the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And of course, I'm very delighted to welcome you all to this noontime lecture. And I appreciate you all uh, braving the um, inclement conditions that we're facing at the moment. So thank you so much for being here. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story, of course, is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. And we also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just before we make a start today, I'm going to go through uh, some upcoming events that we have. And I'm also just going to ask if you could all just check your phones and make sure they're set silent or switched off. Following today's lecture, um, I hope you're hungry or thirsty. So our ongoing cafe series is going to continue with its highlighting of producers from around the Commonwealth. And today we welcome Richmond's own Mother Shrub. They're makers of a colonial era drink with a modern twist. So please stop by the cafe after this lecture and learn about this age old beverage and even take some home with you. Our next lecture, which just to affirm uh, is going to be held online, will take place on Thursday, June 22nd at noon. And that's gonna feature Dr. Misha Ewan of the University of Bristol in the UK. And she'll be speaking about her book, The Virginia Venture, American Colonization and English Society, 1580 to 1660, which I'm very much looking forward to. A week after that, moving away from, from history ever so slightly, please join us for a partner lecture with the MCV Foundation, as Dr. Donahue of VCU is going to provide us with an update of the cutting edge research that's being conducted in Virginia at this very moment into um, into the impact and the health ramifications of space travel on astronauts who are going to be um, setting up a permanent base on the moon and also taking our first steps onto Mars. So please join us for that exciting talk, which is going to look at the health ramifications of space travel. So um, back to Earth and to the subject of today's lecture. Before 1850, all legal executions in the South were performed by crowds that could number in the thousands. The last public execution came in 1936. These spectacles were intended to shame and intimidate, but they had a different impact on black communities. Crowds often consider, uh, consisted of as many black people as white, and they behaved in a congregational manner before a macabre pulpit led in prayer and song by a minister upon the scaffold. This turned the proceedings into public, mixed race and mixed gender celebrations of black religious authority and devotion. But in response, Southern states rewrote their laws to subdue these crowds and ultimately turned to electrocutions that would ca uh, be carried out out of sight in state penitentiary. Here today to unravel and explain this complex history is Dr. Michael Ayers Trotty, Professor of History at Ithaca College in the Finger Lakes of New York. Dr. Trotty is a Richmond local, so welcome back, uh, who earned his bachelor's degree in, VC in history at VCU before moving to UNC Chapel Hill to obtain both his master's and his PhD. His first book, The Body in the Reservoir, explored sensationalism and murder in the Richmond press, and Dr. Trotty has also written on the subject of lynching in the prestigious Journal of American History. His latest book and the subject of today's talk is The End of Public Execution, Race, Religion and Punishment in the American South. So please join me in welcoming uh, Michael. And thank you all for coming. I have to get used to the microphone. I'm usually just a loud professor um, in a room that's not quite this big, and so I'm not used to the microphone. Can any of you, I can see you. I asked them to bring the house lights up enough so that I can see you. Can you do this if, I'm, if you're having any trouble hearing me so that I can uh, modulate? 
this is a homecoming for me. Um, and so I mean that in two different ways, and both of them are really important to me in my career. One is that I've got my sister and my wife's sister and father and other family members and friends uh, around in the audience right now, and it's great to see all of you. Um, this is a homecoming. I was here uh, in 1968. I went through uh, John B. Carey Elementary School right over there and Henderson Middle School three miles that way and Richmond Community High. Uh, <laughs> Richmond Community High, which at that point was in a white building at the back of Carver Elementary School, white where, where there used to be a toll booth on I-95. Um, and uh, so this is this is my home. This is where I grew. This is where I came from. It's a homecoming in another way, too, and that means this particular building. Um, and any of you who are members here, thank you so much. And your $10 to get in this room, thank you so much for giving money um, to this place. When I was an undergraduate at VCU, um, I ran into a crisis. I was working on an honors project, and I couldn't make it work. Couldn't find enough sources on the end of the slave trade in um, 1807 to be able to write my paper. And I went to Phil Schwarz, a professor there, whose wife Linda worked here for a long time. They're wonderful people. Um, and Phil Schwarz um, said, well, the Virginia Historical Society just got these documents in that look pretty interesting. Why don't you take a look at those? That ended up being my honors paper. And in graduate school, I went back to it and uh, revised it, and it was my first publication. Um, it was called Freedmen and Enslaved Soil, and it was about a British man who set his slaves free, and they were moved to Ohio. Really complicated, interesting story. And weirdly enough, in about a month, I'm going to Cincinnati um, to join with descendants of those enslaved Americans who gather with each other each year to go and tour the lands that were bought. Um, I, this is the second time I've done this. So this is a piece that came out of this place that has just been a, a piece of my story as a historian. Uh, my dissertation at UNC came out of, uh, well, the body in the reservoir is the title. That body is Lillian Madison, who was murdered by her cousin, Thomas Clavers, and the trial transcripts are there in the library over there. And uh, I did a ton of research, uh, and that gave me my first book. So when I say it's a homecoming, I, I wanted to take a little time to unpack that. I really mean it's a homecoming. Um, me as a historian, me as a person, this is really, um, this is really where I came from. Um, so uh, this book, the topic is pretty, you know, it's grim. It's, it's a little hard, and it was hard for me as I, as I went along working on this. And I'm not going to make it too hard for you here. I'm going to do two things in this um, presentation. I'm going to read from the book. I'm going to read about five passages. A lot of them are just a couple of sentences, a couple of paragraphs. They're not, not really long, but I'm also going to talk about it. So this is not going to be a lecture. It's going to be a talk. And really what I'm doing and the best way to think of any of these sorts of events is I'm trying to seed the conversation that we can have in the second half. Um, so when we get to the Q&A part, that's when these things become fun. And so in this first half, I'm going to give you some things to chew on that come out of this book um, that should make for a good conversation. Um, There's some people on Zoom and on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, some questions might come from them, but I'm hoping you folks have some questions and comments and thoughts of your own uh, on this. Um, so in... <laughs> I've been working on this for 15 years. So first of all, oh my God, there are better historians out there than me. If it takes me 15 years to finish a book, um, you know, there's, there, there are other people who have come out with two and three books. But it was because it was so complicated and because as a working historian, mostly what I do is teach. And I do the, you know, in the summers I'm doing my writing. But it's also because I took some wrong turns. And I'm gonna open up to you what some of those wrong turns are. Um, what a professional historian actually does um, when they're writing a book. And I'm going to start off with one right now, and I've got another one that I'm going to add a little bit later. The one I'm going to start off with right now is, I thought this book was going to be a book about lynching and about 
capital punishment and about the combination of the two and that I'm going to I was going to have novel and interesting you know discipline shaping I'm not, you know I you think broadly and wildly when you start off with a project I'm going to change the way we think um and it had to do with those things I didn't even write the word religion um, when I was first starting to do this project because I didn't understand what I was actually looking at yet. Um, it came out of my first book. The last chapter in my first book was about the gallows, how so many of those murder stories ended. Um, and I noted that how weird it was that there weren't more books, more scholarship on capital punishment in the South because in the South, that's where people are executed in the United States. That's just... Um, true. Uh, most of the executions are in Texas, where the rest of the executions, most of them are in uh, the rest of the South. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot of scholarship. So I decided to pursue it. And I thought I had this brilliant idea of how as executions became private, you had white people who were used to seeing vengeance enacted in front of them starting to lynch more. That was what I was thinking. And by the way, uh, you know, preview, no, that's not how it works. Um, that's what I thought though. And so I started uh, compiling all this execution material. And if you're gonna look at executions, you're not gonna look at court records. That's gonna say something about the trial. The only place where you get a notice of what happens at the execution is newspapers. So I looked at newspapers and newspapers and newspapers and newspapers and started seeing things like this. Frank Danforth, the murderer of Lizzie Gray, his wife, was hanged today at 1228 o'clock. The execution was private and took place in the jail yard in the presence of several hundred witnesses. There was an immense throng of Negroes on the outside and men and boys were perched on the housetops and trees among the crowd who got up on the high jail yard fence and viewed the execution were many white women who unflinchingly stood the test of their courage. Exactly at 12 o'clock, Sheriff O'Connor with his deputies entered Danforth's cell where Reverends Walker, Lyons, and Goodwin were sitting, singing most fervently religious and devout hymns. Stand up, Frank, Sheriff O'Connor commanded. Without a tremor or the least nervousness, the murderer arose and listened to the death warrant. While the preachers were singing and praying, Danforth rocked to and fro in cadence with the music, testified his belief in the salvation, and ejaculated expressions indicative of the greatest contrition. His favorite expression was, none but the repentant can be saved. On the scaffold, courageously he mounted the gibbet, and stood calmly upon the trap door, and after his legs were tightly tied together with a strong rope, the sheriff asked him if he had anything to say. Yes, sir, he said to the sheriff. And then turning to the crowd, he spoke out in an audible tone as follows. Of course, friends, gentlemen, and ladies, one and all, I have made my peace with God on this earth. He has forgiven me for my sins. Oh, Lord, yes. Oh, he has made me rich and pure in the spirit of the Holy Ghost, and I'm going home to my Savior. That is all I have to say. The service on the scaffold was then commenced. Reverend Barnes read a chapter from the Bible, and Reverend Walker closed with a prayer. While services were going on, Frank kept up singing out, they can kill my flesh, but not my soul. At 2.16, the rope was put around his neck, the knot resting under his left ear. At 12.27, the black cap was tied over his face by Deputy Campbell, the minister's sheriff, his deputies, and last, Frank's brother-in-law, Reverend Calhoun, shook his hands, bade him goodbye, and came down from the gallows. His last words, spoken while the black cap was over his face, were, I'm going home to Jesus and he went. So I came across stories like that, um, where the newspapers were not showing a chastening capital punishment, uh, teaching the firm lesson of the wages of sin is death, but instead someone celebrating his life and his um, hopes for the everlasting. 
Here are a few other just little snippets. John Williams fairly danced up the steps of the scaffold with a light and airy step, bounding to the platform in three jumps and bowing to the crowd. John Thomas began his gallows oration with, I am proud to have such a large audience present. George Washington fostered suspense when a reporter before the hanging asked him, uh, interviewed him. I'll tell that at the hanging, he said, in anticipation of a public hanging. After claiming he had a, quote, through ticket cross the River Jordan, a man condemned for others to be killed and others on the scaffold, and thank God he was one of the latter. Another said he was a soldier in the Union Army, but bless God, now I'm a soldier of the cross. I am perfectly satisfied and willing to die. Oh, people, if you only had my feeling now, how happy you would be. Hold the children on your shoulders so they can see me die. Take warning, I am like Christ on the cross. Hurry, hurry, chided another while standing on the trap. Let me see my Jesus. A Texas man likewise requested the execution be public, and another in Arkansas faced his death, quote, with a benediction upon his lips and a smile upon his face. These are not people who are chastened by the fact that they're having an execution in public. They're celebrating that they have a congregation with them to see them through to the other side. That's a really different kind of a thing than um, the people who write the laws, the sheriffs who are, you know, than the white power structure would want punishment to be. That became my story. It didn't start out being my story. As a historian, we got to look back in the past and be frank with ourselves. And I was wrong the way that I was starting out this project. And I took several different turns as I was going through this project. So what is the book? The book starts out with that. Starts out with what was the commonplace experience of public execution in the South? It was of a black man, 85% of those who were executed in the South are black. Only 20 were women, black women, two white women in the whole period I look at were ever executed in the South. There were hundreds of white men, but thousands of black men who were executed. So this was very much um, a discriminatory practice. Looking at black men convicted of murder and public, ex that's chapter one. Chapter two is, well, how exceptional is it if you in fact have exceptional categories? What were the executions for women, for white people, for uh, black men, for the crimes of rape or um, burglary or, or um, uh, robbery or something like that, arson? And so I look at those exceptions, shortest chapter in the book, because there really aren't, except they're treated the same way, um, except for the fact that white people, the white press was more interested in white people. And so you get a whole lot of press column inches for any time that a, a white person is, uh, otherwise they're very similar. Um, I go through white, a chapter on the ideology of white supremacy and punishment. What are they thinking punishment needs to do? And how are they viewing black religion? Uh, it's not gonna shock you, they were looking down on it. That's the way white supremacy did in the period. Um, and uh, I look at the numbers, uh, how, what's the rise and fall? The high point of capital punishment in the history of the US South, 1890s, if you wanted to know. It declined after that. Not a really fast decline, but it declined after that. Um, uh, I look at uncivil executions. So the South has um, 1,200 counties. Look at all the states of the South added up. That's a lot of different sheriffs. And up until 1908 and, and thereafter, um, they were all uh, executions under local authority. And so each sheriff who's elected might be doing his first execution ever. Um, so, you know, these are very strange circumstances. Um, and uh, so you get all kinds of things happening, and some of them were unruly. Some of them did seem like lynchings, um, uh, but they weren't all that many. Most of them followed a different path and were much more uh, saturated with religion and having not only up there on the stage, 
of the scaffold, um, a condemned man and the sheriff would be there, um, but you would have a minister or two ministers or three ministers up there as well. And the crowd I found, it wasn't white people. It was a mixed crowd. It was white people and black people, men and women and children. Um, uh, when Kentucky in 1880 had a privacy law for their executions, they actually did something weird for 19th century papers. They um, went out on the street and had on the street interviews. It seemed, it seemed very much like a, a contemporary today kind of a thing. What do you think about this new? Um, and there was one guy who said, well, I've seen enough of my life but damned if I don't wish my kids could see one. So, um, you know, it just I, I say that only to get the sort of heightened sense that I think I just got from the response there um, of how different it was in the 19th century. The expectations of what's going to be happening in public um, were really different in this moment. And if you think of it this way, in 1880, anybody who's more than 20 years old you were born into the slave system. And so whether you're black or white or, or man, man or a woman, your expectations of what society is like is going to be framed and colored by that system. And so it's a really different thing than us looking back. Historians always have to, and as a history teacher, man, is this the, like the hardest part of my job is to try to get them to students to stop thinking about what you know the end is, you know, we know it ends with you sitting here in this room in 2023. Um, but, you know, what was it like to actually live there in on December 7th, 1941, when you heard the news, you know, and you didn't know what was going to happen next, and you didn't know that we were going to win and all the historians are have a hard time uh, getting people to focus on um, what was it like in this moment. And in this moment in the late 19th century, it was just a really different reality. I'm going to give you one more um, uh, example of how this project changed on me. I already mentioned the religion part and how um, I didn't understand exactly how fundamental that was going to be to this project. I also thought numbers were going to be more important. I have a chapter on numbers, on the trends in lynching as well as the trends in capital punishment. I wrote an article on the trends in lynching, so I got something out of that. Um, but I thought that was going to be important because I thought I was going to be able to tally um, that sort of change between public and private and the way lynching was changing in different parts of the South and in particular that I would add in a piece of evidence that nobody else had looked at yet in the historical profession, and that is the actual votes in the legislatures for each of the bills that passed that made execution private. I was going to be able to chart, well, where are they in their different states? And are they in the Black Belt counties or in the coastal counties or in the Piedmont counties or whatever? And I, I swear to God, I, sw I spent three summers, which means for me, a teacher, three years working on this. And I, I contemplated bringing in and sort of spreading out for you. It would be like this. It would be like this. <laughs> um, a huge spreadsheet of all 12 states with the years and the lynchings and the executions and the populations of white people and the populations of black people and da, 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 for every state trying to get at the sort of patterns. And then a second huge spreadsheet. I'm now so embarrassed. I'm, 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 this is like a confession that I'm giving here on a stage. I hope you don't kill me afterwards. Um, uh, of of my problems as a historian, but I get compulsive and I, I, I just sort of work it. And the thing that I was working was I made a list of every single county in the South, all 1,200 of them, when they were founded, their population. It took me forever and a day to get this information into this thing. And, and then here's what it is in the book. On page 139, some of these votes were overwhelming and some were contentious with the most interesting division over eliminating public executions being between the political parties. Votes for and against privacy appear to have been 
scattered through each state in ways that do not yield any geographical. <laughs> oh. The, the footnote that I have for that, and the first version of the footnote literally said, I spent three years on this and I thought it was going to be something important. And, uh, but I still, uh, you can still hear my anguish here. If all projects shift while they are in progress, this is a place where I first thought the project would offer an important and novel set of data that might reveal new trends. It's possible that other researchers with more sophisticated statistical tools than I command will be able to wring greater meaning out of these data, and I offer a bounty of citations to give them a path to that end. I have my doubts. <laughs> So the silver lining, of course, is I did all of this work and it actually did help me focus on the legislative debates and the sort of qualitative data, as well as the political um, um, data that I referenced there, just to let you know what that is rather than being mysterious. Um, in a few states, I was able to identify all of the party affiliations. It was actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, and Democrats were voting much more firmly to make executions private rather than public. Republicans in this era would be the party that would protect the interests of African-Americans more. And they were much more either cautious or actually against making um, executions private. When you make them private, you also make them white. Um, and so that's a, a different kind of experience and it's ripping away the sort of um, public authority of African-American ministers in this public forum in the midst of Jim Crow, um, which was a real uh, challenge. Um, what does this all add up to? Um, the public executions are actually a different thing than we thought that they were. That is, in the wider field, it's not just that I had a misunderstanding of the relationship of executions and punishment and race in, in the South, it's that the whole field um, was thinking in those terms that public executions were something like lynchings. Um, we also have uh, misplaced the movement from uh, public to private. So in the wider uh, U.S. history field and the field of punishment and so forth. Most of the people who have written have written on the North. And what they've written is it's a growing civility that led to stopping public executions, that it was gross to do it in front of people, that it coarsened people, that in the crowds there might be still more crimes committed while you're punishing this one, that kind of thing. And certainly as I started the project, I was thinking in those terms as well. Um, but when I saw the religion being so prominent in the coverage here, I started looking closer at what the, uh, in the legislative debates, but also in the editorials um, when these laws were passed, what people were saying about this change in the law from public to private. <clears throat> So did I find evidence of people talking about disorder? I did. Um, but I also found people talking about disorder, white people talking about disorder when they were simply talking about black religion. And so that also made me say, well, what is it they mean? What is it they call disorderly? We calling something disorderly might think it's a brawl or people drinking or something. And there might have been some of that. Um, but the emotional outpouring of a community supporting one of their own at this moment where life meets death, that, that might be called disorder by white people at this time too. Something that was at least as prominent in the historical record as any talk of disorder was that the public execution crowds valorized or made heroic the criminal. The problem from this perspective was less the disorder of public executions, but rather the honor a criminal was earning on the scaffold before a mixed race crowd of thousands. In essence, public executions were not nearly rough enough to many reformers. It wasn't fostering sufficient terror and therefore not providing enough control. 
Public executions placed the convict in a disturbingly prominent role, and it was the ceremony, the black religious revival at the scaffold, that was the problem with public executions from this perspective, rather than the barbarity of allowing the public to gaze upon a killing or any fear of rowdyism in the crowd. Quote, when murderers are executed as murderers and not lionized by the people, when they are no longer allowed to pose as heroes on the death, awful death trap and to harangue the populace to their heart's content, there will be fewer of them called upon to mount the gallows. Thomas Nelson Page, I had a whole, I probably spent another summer just looking into Thomas Nelson Page and the responses to him. There's a really interesting moment where he's writing a whole host of essays on the nature of black people and African-Americans in the African-American press are responding to him. So it's sort of a real time in the midst of Jim Crow, not quite a, it's more like call and response. It's not a real debate because white editors are only letting Thomas Nelson Page publish, but it is in fact in the same moment in 1904 and again in 1907, um, white and black voices in the historical record being able to um, talk, I was about to say to each other, but frankly, it's past each other, um, which is something today and in, in today's world, we're just talking past each other all the time. Maybe sadly, we can relate to that. I've completely forgotten where I am. Oh, there we go. Thomas Nelson Page agreed. At first, the ordinary course of law was relied upon to combat black rapists. Uh, whites were absolutely astonishingly worried about African-American rape when white rape of African-Americans was probably more of a big deal. But it was found that notwithstanding the inevitable infliction of the death penalty, several evil, evils resulted therefrom. Not only did the rapes continue, he says, but also, quote, the criminal under the ministrations of his preachers usually professed to have gotten religion and from the shadow of the gallows called on friends to follow him to glory so that the punishment lost these emotional people, lost to these emotional people much of its deterrent force. Um, it's important to note that timing might be the vital thing here. Having religion at the gallows was totally normal. In the antebellum period, uh, let me just put it in the words that I say here. I'll, I'll read for another moment. The opposition of public execution rose throughout the late 19th century, the early decades of the segregation of Southern churches, an era when the South's racial regime was in flux with the abrupt founding of thousands of African-American Baptist and Methodist congregations throughout the South right after the Civil War. Whites lost what sense of control they thought they had over the religious life of their African-American neighbors. Instead of, quote, tutoring blacks to morality, civil, civility, and true Christianity, they now watched black ministers leading their flocks in emotional release. Whites no longer saw blacks worshiping the same savior in song and prayer. There were executions in the antebellum period that had religion at the gallows, and they were public with a white minister there along with the black man guiding things. That was very different to people than in the late 19th century um, when it is African-American ministers and condemned leading a mixed race crowd. It was in just these decades that the religious revival at the gallows, the moments that made public and before white eyes and ears, the demonstrative demotions of evangelical black religion came under scrutiny and were increasingly criti criticized. Negro churches sprang up everywhere, built largely by northern money, in which there were shouting, praying, singing, all manner of excitement, hysterics, trances, loud calls upon God, but in which there was no religion, at least none of the kind which has its issue in a holy, humble, and obedient walking before God. The restraining influence of white ministers was gone, and, quote, with freedom, the Negro in mass relapsed promptly into the voodooism of Africa. Moans, shouts, and trance meetings could be heard for miles. This is the white criticism of black religion, which spilled over into the criticism of public executions where there was so much black religion on display, white and black crowds seeing um, the power and authority of 
um, the African-American ministers right there among them. So as I was working through this project, it came to dawn on me more and more how radical this actually was. It is not that the condemned regularly said, I am like Jesus on the cross, though some did. Some others said, like the early disciples of the church being stoned for their beliefs and so forth. Some did go that far, but simply being someone of religious authority and being black in the era of Jim Crow and on a stage in front of thousands, men, women, children, black, white, that was a challenge, an affront to white supremacy. It flew in the face of the sort of strictures that whites who lost all the stricture at the barrel of a gun, Union armies coming down, lost the strictures that they had had during slavery. And in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, they're trying to re-inscribe their authority in the South. And this is a moment which just flies in the face of that. So that was, that was when I knew I had something. That I, okay, there's a book here. <laughs> um, I thought there was a book here. I thought it was a different book. <laughs> um, but now I, I knew what it was. Um, in the big picture, the North, the West, they went to privacy earlier. And um, while um, religion is mentioned there as well, they really tell a story of civility. The South, I think, has a distinct history here, as so much is distinct in the history of the American South. Um, and it's because, like I say, 85% of those who are executed in the South were African American. And that means the nature of these moments of punishment were nature were um, moments also of race in the South. And that changes the dynamic um, here. Already in complete control of the mechanisms of Southern governance by the late 1870s, the white South and the generation uh, the next generation jiggered with the machinery of punishment to yield what they thought might be the best output of social order through terror and control under white supremacy. Both of the developments in lethal punishment in this totalitarian, in terms of the African-American population, I would call it totalitarian regime, lynching and privacy and executions were both meant, at least in part, to ensure that the underclass was adequately terrorized. That lynching was intended to accomplish this is perhaps obvious. What is revealing here is that the failure of legal public execution to terrorize is a starting place we didn't have for understanding the grim horror of Southern lynching. If the legal punishment regime were a were accomplishing not simply the goals of justice in the South, all legal regimes do that, but in the South they wanted it to do another task as well, but also the goals of white supremacy by provoking terror and promoting the racial order as effectively of the slave regime had done. If the legal regime had been able to do that, fewer white Southerners would have found utility in resorting to mobs. Each generation inherits a world and passes on a different one. There are struggles today that echo the struggles from more than 100 years ago, but it's also true that change is inevitable and the change is pervasive. Laws can and will and have been changed. Gender roles and mores change. Race relations have likewise never been static. They too change. And so with capital punishment which has changed in sweeping ways in the last century since the end of this study that I focused the book upon. Downward, the trend was downward throughout the 20th century, then upward again um, after the 1970s, and now sharply downward yet again. A decades-long decline ended in the U.S. Supreme Court banning the death penalty in the United States as cruel and unusual in the early 1970s. A revised procedure allowed by 1976 led to a quarter century surge, which 
roughly mirrors the surge in incarceration rates that um, have been um, much a topic of conversation in the last generation. Um, to a modern high of 98 executions in the United States in the year 1999. But since then, the use of the death penalty has fallen almost every year. All six of the six years with the lowest numbers of those legally executed in the United States were from 19, I'm sorry, from 2016 to 2021. Almost all of those executions were in Southern states. And I'm so pleased um, to be here giving this talk, to be able to add this next line in, which when I started this project, I could not have imagined saying. In 2021, Virginia became the 23rd state to abolish capital punishment and the first state in the American South ever in the history of the United States to not have capital punishment. Thank you. There are a couple of people around in the, oh, hey, I heard their microphones coming on. <laughs> Uh, who have microphones, and if you have any questions, I would love to take them. Yeah. Sure. Um, it might be good to have the microphone. I can hear you fine, but there are people in the back who surely cannot. Made a snide comment that went all the way front. Um, there you go. The, the the first um, reading that you did uh, and you spoke of um, the man on the gallows who was celebrating having a congregation present there, um, and um, talked about going home, brought to mind during the Civil War, the, the concept of having a good death. Yes. Um, and uh, Drew Gilpin Faust wrote a, a good book yeah, that's on book that. On yeah. That. Um, and I, I definitely, I see the connection as well. Yeah. Um, I also, I'm glad that your statistical analysis um, didn't pan out <laughs> because uh, as a, a history lover, uh, and, and I wanted at one point to be a historian and a history professor until I found out that no one cares because all you do is memorize dates. Oh, that's not true. We have arguments. Uh, yes. We, we, we chew point, on things. At one point in time. <laughs> um, and also, uh, it's important for us to remember now about um, the role of the Democratic and Republican parties back in time. When, yeah. That, yeah. you know, Lincoln, the Democratic was, a, party was, Lincoln the, was a Republican. That's right. right. The Democrats were. They were the conservatives were, of the uh, South. Right. The, yeah. the white supremacists, really. And. Uh, okay. I just wanted to thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you adding that in. That's great. Um, yes. I gather that um, the status of lynching and capital punishment was uh, much different in, say, the British Commonwealth and in Western Europe than it was uh, particularly in the South. Did, did you see some evidence of that? I gathered that that's true too, but I'm going to frame it in, in those sorts of terms. This is very much a study of the South, and so I, I compared it to the North and the West in in certain ways, um, and I'm I made only halting sort of gestures to the rest of the world. We inherited for Britain a legal code that had hundreds of crimes that could have the death penalty. Um, you know, one of the ways we rationalized the criminal code in the 1790s and early 1800s was to get rid of, you know, hundreds of different ways that you could kill people and have it mostly be for murder that you're gonna execute people. That was part of the enlightenment sort of um, generation. So, uh, so in terms of uh, back in that period, I would say we're very distinct from what was going on in Britain. 
if you're talking about now, we stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, you have to you have to compare us to there are like three or four other nations in the world who kill anybody at anything like the scale that that we have in the last few generations. And most not not generally and and generally they're ashamed of it too for instance china kills a lot of people um but they don't even give num i mean who knows how many that we don't know and there are a few other regimes in africa or in south america who um who are pretty or in the middle east who are pretty blood bloody but absolutely this is not what we aspire to yeah in the back i did some i'm sorry uh, I did some graduate work at UNC uh, 40 years ago, and uh, one of my favorite professors was Joel Williamson. I'm yeah, just wondering sure. if you uh, if you were there when he was there, or his, and who has carried on his legacy in the history department at UNC. That's a really good question. Well, I was there 30 years ago, so uh, just a little bit after you. And who has his legacy right now? I'm afraid I, I I would be I'd have to go through the ranks to try to figure that out. I took a class with Joel Williamson, and and he was terrific. And um, the Southern history that's there, of course, the Southern historical collection that's there as well is just, uh, is just terrific. Um, but I'm afraid I don't know right now who, who at UNC um, is carrying on the tradition. I mean, I'd love to say I was carrying on a little tiny piece of his tradition, but I think that would be, um, that would be a little bit uppity of me. Any difference between state and federal executions? Um, almost all executions are state, so yes. Um, criminal codes are almost all state matters. So um, we're talking about way more, we're talking about today, way more than 90% of all executions are under state authority, not federal. Um, where you had federal authority back in the period I'm looking at would have been in Arkansas. That was the state. In, and in fact, I had a hard time distinguishing at first that. Um, why were all these executions at Fort whatever, Fort whatever, and it said it was under federal authority? And those were executions of Native Americans um, who were right on the edge of Oklahoma. And it was there that um, people were being taken for some reason or another. And I, I got those out of my, um, my study in terms of numbers and so forth. Um, so um, the, there are just very few. And um, it has been rising. So um there were only what um i'm gonna i'm gonna mistake these numbers just because that's the way my brain works uh, around 21 executions in 2020 something like that and six of them almost a third of them were federal executions because as donald trump was leaving he decided to um, um push these along um and it's almost never that it's that proportion a third of them i mean it's almost always that they're like three executions that are or two or one or none that are at the federal level. And the 99 we had in 1999, um, most all of those are state. I mean, um, if you wanted to talk about executions in America, you could just talk about Texas and you'd be talking about most of them in, in the last hundred years. Literally, you'd be talking about most of them. Um, and if you looked at the rest of the South, you'd be t talking about 95% of all of the executions in the United States. And really, it's only like three other states um, that are. Uh, Virginia, by the way, is way up there in the rankings in terms of executions, partly because we started in 1607. <laughs> and so there are a lot of executions early. It's not like there were so many executions in the last generation in Virginia. Um, Hi, I have kind of a two part question. I'm curious if in your research into the newspaper accounts of public executions, if you found a substantive difference in the way that white newspapers and black newspapers yeah. describe the executions, uh, um, and then after executions moved into the private sphere, were those papers still reporting on them with the same level of detail? Okay, those are two different questions. I'm gonna take them one at a time. Um, and there was somebody up here who, somebody, there's a friend up here that I know would like to ask a question, although I'm really scared of what, what he's going to ask. Um, so um, uh, I would, the biggest disappointment, okay, I have two disappointments in this book. And this, I'll continue my confessional. Um, one is completely meaningless, but it bums me out. 
A friend of mine said, you should have in your index an entry that says death on unhealthy interest in, comma, and the whole book's page numbers on it. And I thought that was hilarious. And I put it in there and the press came back with a stone cold, this is not typical of how an index entry, you know, I mean, it was just completely like they didn't get the joke. Um, and I pushed on, I actually pushed back on the publisher. I wanted this in there, but then they ended up dropping it out. So that, that was a little bitty nonsensical um, bummer. But the actual bummer that I have is I wanted to be able to explore in depth how African-American papers were talking about this differently than white papers. And here's the problem with that. The African-American population, the, my study goes until 1920, uh, 1866 to 1920, is poor. They don't have as many papers and they're weekly papers. So the Richmond Planet is a weekly paper. What is a weekly paper? Any weekly paper, a white one, black one, no matter what, it's not gonna be covering the news it's going to be covering the community. Here's something about the fraternal organizations, the church, the celebration, da da da, or big issues in the community, the laws coming down, or whatever. Um, and so, almost never does an African American paper in the South, and I looked a lot, cover executions. The only time they cover crime, really, in any substantive way, is when they're sure that the person is innocent and that this is going to, in fact, be a sort of civil rights case that they can push. The sort of commonplace thing that would happen of somebody getting drunk and somebody gets hurt and then, uh, then they die and they're executed for murder, that kind of a story, which is so commonplace that it happens, African-American paper wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. The white papers are way too often talking about us as criminals. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Um, and so I would love to, I did, I, you'll, in, in the book, there are a few places where um, I did find, and they were very much parallel. They talked about religion. They talked about um, them in similar kinds of ways in terms of the dynamic. Um, after things are uh, private, most states put gag orders. The only thing that you can say is, um, well, once electrocution happens, there were gag orders. Electrocutions were disgusting. Um, hangings were disgusting. Um, and so I'm not going to go into any of that. I'm just letting you know they were disgusting. Let's just leave it there. Um, but um, they were, uh, there were gag orders. So you can say that an execution happened. You couldn't describe what happens. And so that was another way they were trying to make it private. So things do change over time. So we can assume that many or a percentage of the executions were of innocent people. No. So uh, can you speak to that? The, 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 any, any insights you may have had about the one percent might have been innocent? Yeah, I mean, uh, looking at newspaper reports from 100 years later, that's really a tough thing to answer. But... Uh, were there innocent, were there people claiming innocence? Heck yeah. And so people, people then would be on the scaffold and they would say, I never committed this crime. It was so-and-so who's trying to frame me for this. And um, one of them said pointedly at the prosecutor and they're going to have to go to the heavenly altar and ask for forgiveness and be judged themselves. But um, so there were moments where people were professing their innocence on the gallows, but they would still confess their sins. But I'm a sinner. I didn't do this crime, and you know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm a sinner, and I've repented before the Lord, and the Lord's graceful arms are going to um, enfold me, and, and so forth. So the religion would still be there. The dynamic is still there, but they would be claiming innocence. A lot of them admitted it. I did this. It was, I don't stay away from drink. For some reason, bad women. Uh, bad drink, bad liquor and bad women. I mean, it's like men, men, do you have to blame women all the time, even when, you know, um, but they would blame something, but, but they would say it was under the influence of this and I've turned around and I've embraced the Lord and, you know, I'm going to be forgiven and so forth. But there are more confessions on the gallows than you might imagine there would be. And a follow-on, uh, as, as the book comes to an end, 
do you see a clear path to the next chapter of the story? Um, in in terms of um, public to private, what happens next? Well, I, in your, your, your book comes to an end in 1920. Yeah. Do you see any interesting... I'm not moving forward. No, it's all boring after that. My, my book is the conclusion of this whole topic. Um, no, that I'm, I'm being facetious. Um, but as far as my research is definitely coming to an end, what happens in the, in the course of the 20th century is an entirely different dynamic, which I, I, I briefly mentioned there, of declining numbers nationwide, including in the South, so that literally by 1965, 6, 7, 8, you have nationwide one, two, one, zero executions. And at this point, a case becomes, comes before the Supreme Court where they said, well, it's just erratic why someone would be dying for the crime of murder and most everybody else is going to jail. This is cruel and unusual punishment. That's the Furman decision in 1972. Um, and states reform the way that they do their criminal law and you get this surge of a different kind of a process. So there's totally a story. It's just an entirely different story than the one that I'm telling here. Um, that's Jonathan, um, by the way. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but for the benefit of uh, those in the audience who might not know this, uh, Virginia recently became the first and so far the only state in the South to have abolished capital punishment. And we did that three years ago. Um, and there is a really good book on the history that, that came out in the wake of that uh, decision by Virginia about the history of executions in Virginia and it was written by a guy named Dale Brumfeld and it's called Closing the, the Slaughterhouse. And uh, it's quite an amazing book. And Dale says, and I've always thought this to be the case, that if you go back to colonial times, Virginia has the most executions of any state in the union. And I don't think it's even close because we executed so many people back during colonial times. And during the slavery era. Um, a, exactly. A, a part of the story of slavery um, is of executions. Um, so yeah. My sister has a question. Well, it's actually not a question. Okay. But um, the idea that there's something else after this book that sort of leads to whatever, I was struck throughout the entire book with what would have happened if this didn't happen that way. Because we had the races, the gender, there were women, and they were allowed to be in this big thing. And the, the races were together, and there was all this together. If it had kept yeah. And, hey, I've got a, this means I've got a reader. Somebody has read the book. That is, that is awesome. Um, um, and um, so, yeah, and, and in a variety of ways, the sort of uh, hypotheticals of how things could, could be different sort of boggle the mind. I don't know if any of you remember Phil Donahue in the 1980s um, actually uh, petitioned to um, air on live national TV an execution. He was an anti-capital punishment person and he believed if we actually saw it, we would wanna end it. And so, so there's another thing, if it had stayed public, would in fact the whole discussion of punishment be a different discussion through the 20th century? Things away. We've sort of moved away from having microphones. I have no idea where the microphones are right now. Okay. Oh, this will be, this is our last. Just an observation. Um, in the year 2023, uh, sadly, your book would probably be banned in Florida. Um, I haven't found out that it's banned. Of course, uh, I, you know, I have one reader right here. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that it's a problem. But, um, but yes, um, the, the ways in which... Um, I have in my afterward, actually, um, a I did not write this to be timely uh, paragraph uh, where I started this in 2028. And, you know, think about that moment when, what, uh, what's that? <laughs> I, I started this in five years and then I, and then I came back and published it. I started this in 2008 and think about how the whole national discussion has changed since then. So um, in no way was this book 
meant to be timely. And yet the, the discussions of white supremacy um, really resonate with some stuff that's going on, anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant and anti-African-American, um, um, uh, the um, ideology, but also all sorts of discussions of policing and punishment that have become central parts of what we're talking about right now. Um, and they were central parts of what we were talking about 120 years ago. Um, the nature of all of those things shifted. It's not like we're having the same conversation and that should give us hope. Um, but nevertheless, these issues are really um, important ones then and they're important ones now. I thank you so much for letting me come home and for being with you in this audience. Thank you.